welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. On today's episode, you'll be hearing an interview that Sam did with Lance Scott Walker about his book, DJ Screw, A Life and Slow Revolution. Walker is a writer originally from Texas. Um, he's written for nearly everyone you can imagine. Red Bull Music Academy, Vice, Fader, The Wire, million other places. And Sam and I wanted to go ahead and talk to Walker about his DJ Screw book for a couple of reasons. Like one, just it's such a fascinating in-depth portrayal of a really unique uh, music scene, which is like the Houston rap hip hop scene. And, but particularly the just the genius that was DJ Screw and obviously the connection that his work had, not only just in the music, but also within the, the community itself and how it really became a foundation that eventually put Houston hip-hop and rap like on the map and also to talk about his legacy and how unfortunately uh, screw was not really um, alive to see the sort of success that so many houston artists um, ended up having that he kind of like paved the way for in, in some ways it's a great interview they go in depth about the history of houston the scene and the singular remarkable artist that was dj screw please rate and review us as always follow us on all the socials Subscribe to our newsletter. Well, yeah, we'll be back sooner than later with a new episode. But until then, enjoy this great interview with Sam with Lance Scott Walker. for nothing lance scott walker the author of the fantastic book dj screw a life in slow revolution um, out now on university of texas press lance thank you so much for taking the time taking the time to talk sam thank you for having me and i, I really can't i loved this book this book was so good it managed to do like there's a lot of books that could do one of the following two which is like a complex portrait of a complicated place that a culture is happening in and like a, a clear deep appreciation of the music itself and your book does both and i just i learned a, a tremendous amount from it so i'm really pumped to get to talk fantastic i'm so glad so i guess to start with i want to zoom like way way out and talk about houston which is the backdrop of DJ Screw's life and career and legacy, in part because, like, you know, Houston is this, like, sunbelt metropolis, I think, that has a, a set of dynamics that um, mean that, I guess, what's going on there in the 80s and 90s is related in some ways, but, but different um, in, in many ways from what's happening in uh, a lot of, you know, major major centers of black cultural production like new york or la for a second so i'm wondering if you could 
start by just telling us a little bit about about Houston and, and where Houston is at in the, the 80s and the 90s. As far as its relationship to hip-hop? As far as its relationship to hip-hop, but also, I guess, more generally, like, um, just like a, a snapshot of, of the city. I mean, because my, my sense is, you know, it's it's not going through the kinds of deindustrialization that we tend to think about in, you know, probably like most Correct. American cities mm-hmm. in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it was not going through that same sort of... Uh, you know, there were recessions, uh, you know, it's the oil industry, it's oil and it's medicine and it's aerospace. So the industries there are, are very different from, you know, the, the sort of industries that you saw disappearing in more northern cities like, you know, like Detroit and Philadelphia, you know, that, that you know, Houston surpassed on the, uh, the list of, you know, largest cities in you know, the United States. You know, Houston was much further down that list in the 50s, 60s, and even really the 70s, and then just you know, as um, you know, as 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 those three industries continued to blossom in Houston, you know, the oil and aerospace and and medicine, you know, there's a huge medical center there and cancer treatment um, centers that people travel the world to to you know to be treated at in Houston. So, you know, you, you had an economy that was, you know, largely sort of self-sufficient and in a way that kind of drew people to Houston and also kept people in Houston. And I think those those two things right there led to, you know, Houston growing to, you know, surpass Philadelphia and Dallas and, and, and you know, become the... Uh, the fourth largest city in the United States and, and well on its way to becoming the third largest city in the United States to, to surpass Chicago, you know, maybe even by the time of the next census, you know, we kind of thought that might happen by the last census, but, um, you know, the way that, you know, Houston is, um, the, you know, the actual metropolitan area is much, is much, much larger than, than the actual city of Houston. Cause there are, you know, sort of satellite cities around Houston that still, factor into the population and factor into the culture and you know factor into the whole you know kind of movement of the city even if they don't uh, show up in the numbers as it were so you know you've got those factors working for the city of Houston and you got people staying there you got people some people coming from up north their families are moving um, to uh, to work in in uh, in oil and trucking and uh, you know shipping because there's a huge you know there's a huge port there so you know a lot of that, uh, in, in especially in the wake of uh, deindustrialization, uh, brought a lot of people to Houston in the '70s and '80s, and a lot of those uh, families who were moving to Houston had uh, small children, my age. You know, I was born in 1973, and um, you know, I, I was born a week after hip hop. You know, the the original hip hop party was August 11th, I believe it was 1973, and I was born August 20th. So, you know, you've got that, um, you know, there's, there's that, that movement building up north. It's building in, in New York and, you know, years later it starts building in L.A. And by the time you get to the, you know, it hits a little bit later in Houston, but by the time you get into the, uh, to the early 80s, there are people in Houston who have brought hip-hop with them from up north. And then as a result of hip-hop finding its way onto, you know, onto movie screens in the form of Break-In and Beach Street and, you know, Crush Groove and, you know, all the movies that were, you know, started making their way through cinemas in, you know, the mid 80s, um, you had a scene that was really um, starting to boil 
by the time you know by the by the mid to to late 80s which is when you see rap a lot records um rise up uh, as the um the engine behind the ghetto boys the original ghetto boys and uh that being an independent record label that didn't depend on uh attention from new york or la um really set a blueprint for what was to follow which is you know a whole you know, g- generations of independent artists that uh, that stayed in Houston and made music in Houston and formed uh, a, a great community in Houston. Yeah. So, so, so let's stay uh, in the '80s for a second, because because I, I kind of think uh, from your book that to understand what happens um, with Houston rap music in in the '90s, that kind of like that '80s moment just before it is is really it's really crucial because you get kind of this process through which these national sounds start to be kind of um, you know, begin to become vernacularized, begin to be kind of like rooted in the like musical practices and cultural practices of various communities in Houston. So, I mean, so, so I guess maybe first, like what was the music scene in Houston like in the 80s? I mean, you said a little bit about that, that there start to be independent labels, but yeah, like were, were there, were there labels, were there distributors? Like what was, what was the kind of like infrastructure for those kind of things to happen locally? Um, in the 80s well it was you know it, it was all independent it was all james prince and and rap a lot records really in the beginning and uh you know distributing locally and then regionally and then you know by by the late 90s they were they were picking up uh, more involved distribution deals you know with rick rubin becoming involved with the ghetto boys and, and that sort of thing but really prior to that it was it was it was locally distributed and regionally distributed and there was, uh, you know, there were, there were, I would say there were some local distributors that were picking up on it, but for the most part, it was being handled by the labels and, you know, direct to stores. And, you know, so, and, and just to kind of touch on what you were talking about with the sound, you know, Houston didn't really have its own sound in the beginning in the sense that a lot of the artists who made up the early groups were actually from up north. They were from Chicago, or they were they were from New Jersey, and so this is like eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight. This is the early Ghetto Boys: Prince Johnny C, DJ Ready Red. You know, DJ Ready Red was the producer who was making all the beats for the early Ghetto Boys, all the way up through the Mugshot album, and and on to We Can't Be Stopped, which was their their big breakthrough. You know, and he's from New he's from New Jersey, and so he brought you know a northern sensibility with him. MC Wicked Cricket was from New York. He wasn't. Uh, making sounds as it were, but he was definitely a, a big progenitor of the culture as an MC and um, somebody who was promoting events and just getting people into hip hop and just spreading the, the word of hip hop and spreading the music around. That was, you know, he, he goes back to the late seventies, but you know, the, the sound I don't think really starts to, to develop until, um, you know, a little bit further in the, in the late eighties when, um, you know, and maybe just, sort of a natural uh, growth in that direction early early producers on uh, you know ghetto boys records in particular and and you know royal flush that group those guys were from the east coast def four was from chicago you know so you're getting all these influences from elsewhere but at the same time you've got producers in houston that were working on that sound and crafting that sound and and crafting a sound that fit the voices that were developing you know which in the beginning Again, you know, you, you've you've got local voices like Sire Jukebox, Prince Johnny C, Raheem, you know, who was, you know, mm-hmm. was, you know, the first Houston rapper to get a major label deal. 
you know, so you had those artists and then, you know, ghetto boys continue to evolve and shed members and take on new members. And so as you've got new artists like Willie D and Scarface, you know, who come in, uh, to the picture, the sound begins to evolve alongside them because they step the game up so much. So, so then you've got, you know, you've got early producers for the ghetto boys like Carl Stevenson and Cliff Blodgett. And, um, then people start to come into the picture like Mike Dean, you know, who everybody knows now is a, you know, global super producer, but you know, he was part of that early rap a lot sound and, you know, he was producing for Selena and I mean, he, you know, he's, he's just been a, a machine for, you know, three and a half decades now. And, uh, and he was, he was really central to that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that kind of Southern funk sound that, that the ghetto boys were developing that, uh, that really, you know, dovetailed just perfectly with, um, what was going on in LA, you know, a, a few years later, you know, with, with uh, what Dr. Dre was doing, even if what Dr. Dre w- was doing was certainly, you know, more refined and, and had, um, he had a lot more resources, uh, you know, at his fingertips and, um, and it, it probably more experience in that sense. Cause he'd already, you know, produced Wreck and Crew and NWA records. And so, you know, you had a lot of things sort of dovetailing into that, that, that really brought Houston to a certain point in the early nineties where the ghetto boys broke and gangster rap broke because not because of the ghetto boys, but because of Dr. Dre and Snoop Doggy Dog. And, you know, the chronic came out and, um, then also, also, you know, in, at this same time you had, uh, the availabilities of uh, the availability of CDs, which were easier to make and certainly easier to take around in the trunk of your car in Houston, Texas, right? Than uh, than were vinyl LPs, and you know a lot of labels, a lot of artists in Houston who were, like I said again, p- people who were my age, you know, people who were then in their late teens or early twenties. I moved to Houston from Galveston in 1992. I was 19 years old, and you know a lot of the you know, as I've done these interviews and, and, and talked to people over the years, you know, I'm, I'm talking to people who are my contemporaries. Most of them are right around my age, a little bit younger, sometimes a little bit older, but uh, we're all right around the same age. And so you're really getting uh, a lot of people who are in their sort of creative prime uh, who now have access to um, to being able to press CDs and uh, which, like I said, were less expensive and easier to transport and everything. And also, inspired by the blueprint that that rap a lot had created which was that you know you could take <clears throat> excuse me inspired by the rap a lot the the blueprint that rap a lot had um um you know generated which was that you know you could take your money from wherever you got it or if it was dirty money street money whatever it was you had take it and clean it up invest it in studio time invest it in artists invest it in pressing up records you know and that there was a local market for it and there was a local there was a local market for it. Yeah. Because you know, the, the people in Houston wanted to support artists from Houston and Houston has always been a huge hip hop market, even if it's sort of been flyover territory as far as, you know, New York and LA were concerned. Yeah. I mean, you also write in, in really interesting ways about the kind of development of both like a, mm-hmm. a, a hip hop club scene in the eighties and then in, in also kind of a hip hop you know the beginnings of like a hip hop mixtape scene that there's this um not just you know when by the time that that rap a lot starts producing records is by the time you start getting um kind of local talent that there's already this kind of uh this uh simmering set of audiences that are kind of primed 
to s- listen to this music and to support it. Mm-hmm. And, and well, and simmering artists who had developed themselves in front of those audiences because it was such an, an, an interact, interactive scene, you know. I mean, they, they were freestyling, they were battle rapping, um, they, were, they were competing against each other in the clubs, and, you know, they were going for blood. Yeah, so can you tell, tell us just, uh, like, a little bit more about that? Because it's such a fascinating part of the story that there's this... Um this kind of like you're saying this live freestyle component i mean honestly it reminds me in some ways about what i know about um like the early years of bounce in new orleans um, not that far away i guess where similarly there's this like live freestyle club scene that ends up having um there a huge impact on kind of like the the verbal style of bounce artists and here maybe um an impact on the kind of freestyle heavy approach uh that the screw ends up taking yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know that I could say for sure that the what was going. So what we're talking about is like mid '80s uh, in Houston. There was a club called Rhinestone Wrangler, which was was actually like a kind of a um, it was like a it was like a, a country bar. I mean, that's where the name comes from. You know, I mean, astounding name for a club. Yeah, I mean, astounding. yeah, because we're talking about <laughs> everything going on in the wake of Urban Cowboy and. Uh, the whole country scene that was going on um, in Texas and, and really everywhere, you know, there was a lot of pop, you know, the country was, had a, a huge pop revival in that era. And, um, and I was aware of it because my dad was playing in Western swing bands. And so, you know, he was playing at Gillies and Eve's Rusty Nail and, you know, the 12th street Inn and Galveston and, and all those, those kinds of places. So Anyway, so but but you know, I'd say like by the kind of the mid '80s, some of that had passed, and so this this place was available, and there was a, um, a DJ in Houston named uh, Steve Fournier who took over the place uh, as a promoter and and brought along with him uh, a, a, a promoter named Big Big Steve and a, a DJ named RP Cola, and they started hosting, and, and it was just a strictly a hip hop club, which did not exist in Houston before that. You know, there were certain clubs that would play hip hop. But for the most part, you know, it was it was that music for club owners. They were like, well, you're not going to play that music, you know. So DJs would kind of have to sneak it into their sets. And, um, you know, nobody was ever really given license to just just strictly play hip hop until the Rhinestone Wrangler. And, you know, it turned out that audience in, audiences in Houston really wanted to hear that. And so they came out in droves and they came out every night. And on uh, Sunday nights in particular, that was when they would have the big battle rap contests. And so they would have... Mm-hmm basically like a battle rap contest that was a later part of the evening that people would look forward to, you know, they're playing music all night and people are dancing and other people are just hanging around drinking and that sort of thing. And then they'd have the big battle rap contest. And then closer to the very end of the night, they'd have what was called the cap rapping contest, which was really like rank rapping, like insult rapping, like going after each other kind of rapping. And so this is where like the early ghetto boys and really Willie D in particular, started to really shine because he loved going after people and in the, in the group Royal flush, you know, those guys were involved. A guy named Romeo poet who, if you've ever seen uh, the hip hop evolution that focused on Houston, they did an, an interview with Romeo, Romeo poet, which I was so glad to see because he's such an unsung and kind of forgotten part of that uh, mm. puzzle because he just didn't, didn't really release a whole lot of records. You know, he's on a few, few records and, but there were guys in that scene who were, um, developed into really amazing artists because they were like battle tested you know they they went out on sundays they maybe they had some rhymes that they thought up or they were just really quick on their feet and they could go after each other and you know just rank on each other 
And that was the part of the night that, you know, the, the earlier part of the night was like, you know, if you won that, you got a hundred bucks or whatever, but like the real crown jewel of the night was if you won the cap wrapping contest, if you won the rank, the rap attack contest is what they called it. And so this scene, um, you know, really gave birth to a whole style that, uh, that really that Willie D pioneered, you know, just a whole rhythmic style that, that you could hear, you could, you could still hear it, you know, you can hear it just echoing through Houston rap over the decades, you know, Willie D doesn't get the same kind of attention that, that Scarface might, because Scarface is just known on so many different levels, but, uh, Willie D was really a, such a huge influence on what was going on in Houston. And you had a radio show going on at that time too. Um, the uh, Kids Jam, which was on uh, KTSU radio, it was on on Saturday mornings, and started off as a, a kids show, right? And then and then kind of slowly became a rap. Well, show? they called it Kids Jam. Um, I mean, it started off as a kids show in the sense that like the DJs were kids; they were students. You know, they were you know they were college students, but they were they were students, so they were young, and 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 so they just called the show Kids Jam. Uh, but you know, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, from my understanding, it, the, the show started in 1983, 1984. Nobody could ever really give me a, um, a firm date on that. But um, what I know of it is, is as it, it when it became a hip hop show, I used to be able to pick it up in Galveston on Saturday mornings. And so I was listening to it. I didn't really know who I was listening to. I had no idea that it was all these influential uh, people because the people who were on that radio show were be, ended up becoming really super influential DJs and some of them still out there working today, like Jazzy Red and Lester Sir Pace and Marcus Love and, you know, the people who are still working in radio, you know. And um, so so you had those things going on in Houston in the mid to late 80s. And that's right at the time where DJ Screw relocates from Smithville to Houston. And so uh, I don't believe that he ever got to go to the Rhinestone Wrangler when all of that was going on. But certainly the the, the reverberations of that scene were, were making their way through um, the the generation that was younger than them, and which would have, which would have included DJ Screw. You know, he was he's younger than than all the Ghetto Boys, and so you know that influence I think was was still kind of reverberating as Rap a Lot Records was sort of picking up steam and releasing records by Royal Flush and Def Four, and you know they didn't release Raheem's first record, but they released a, a record you know, his his second album once he he left the major, and of course all the Ghetto Boys records, which you know the Ghetto Boys were the first group in Houston to release. There were there were records, there were hip hop records that came out before Ghetto Boys, but Ghetto Boys were the first group to release more than one record, mm-hmm. which was a big deal. You know, like there were there were there was a there was a kind of a there was a hip hop record came out in in Houston 1981, and there was a a few in 1983 and 1984, but they were just one-offs and they were important. Don't get me wrong. But, but once, once one group starts releasing multiple records, it really starts to get into people's, um, conscious and, um, and they were doing shows and they were, they were outrageous. And so, you know, ghetto boys are really that, that central part that, 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 that allowed, you know, they, they ran so everybody else could walk, you know, you could say. So, um, so DJ Screw sort of comes in on the on the tail end of that, moves into on the tail end of that part of the scene, but it but is watching it grow and Ghetto Boys, like I said, becoming a major label group and you know topping the charts and becoming known all over the world, and that that inspired that generation that, that came after that DJ Screw was a part of. Yeah, and I I love um, what you're saying kind of about the distinctive uh, rapping style, and I mean it strikes me, and and maybe maybe I'm way off base here. 
but you know just thinking about um kind of like the, the complex interplays between like live and recorded music that, that go through all of this is that um you know folks in new york certainly certainly folks in new york maybe to a lesser extent but also i think still probably folks in la like the the, the opportunities to record just because of the density of music industry there that like almost that there's a uh the, the kind of the live element of hip-hop mm-hmm. that you know the 70s version of like rocking parties stays alive like longer in, in a place like houston or is almost like reinvented and, and that, that helps to shape the the kind of the lyrical style or at least the the, the, the flow. yeah yeah i mean you know the 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 live element i think was 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 huge because you know you, do, you don't have you probably didn't have the same sort of um you know, in New York, you had, you had multiple clubs, you had, you know, you had, you had downtown, you had Bronx, you had stuff that was going on in Queens, you had stuff that was going on in Brooklyn. Whereas in Houston, kind of, it was kind of like everybody in town had to drive to the one spot. Um, but that gave it a, a particular energy. And I think that, that, that spread that style throughout, um, you know, the various kind of satellite neighborhoods that, um, that make up Houston. You know, whether you're from the north side or you're from the south side or or wherever, that, that really brought the city together in the beginning. Of course, it sort of splintered, you know, years later as the scenes kind of grew and, and, and sort of grew apart. But uh, but the style, you know, continued to <clears throat> the style continued to travel throughout um, throughout Houston, regardless. And I think people just, you know, because those those early records became such classics and those early records were based on. Um, all the you know the skill sets that, that they had developed in the clubs. So you kind of said that that uh, Robert Earl Davis Jr., um, better known as DJ Screw, kind of moves to Houston in in this period of time. So I'm wondering if we could kind of pick up pick up his story a little bit. Um, you know, where's where's he from? And how does he how does he first get into into music and and into DJing more specifically? Well, he's from he's he's from Smithville in the sense that his family's from Smithville. Smithville is in the hill country of Texas. It's kind of equidistant between Houston and Austin. I think a little, a little closer to Austin and much closer to Austin actually. And, but it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It's a little country town population of about 3000, never really been over, um, really over that. And so he's, he's born when he's born, he's born actually in Bastrop because there wasn't a hospital in Smithville, his family pretty soon after that moved to Houston because his father took a trucking job. And so it's him and his older sister, Michelle and his mother and his father. And they moved to fifth ward Cashmere gardens on the North side of Houston, which of course is kind of a shocker in the book because a lot of people associate him with South side Houston, which is accurate because he did develop as an artist on the South side. But as a little kid, he lived on the North side of Houston uh, up until he was about in the second grade. And those were, Seminal years in the sense that his there were lots of record stores in Fifth Ward and Third Ward, and his mother bought lots of records, and she brought those records home and she played them in the house. And so he grew up on lots of, you know, um, 70s R&B, funk, soul, Quiet Storm, some Zydeco, you know, that kind of stuff was in the house. And, you know, his mother loved to play records, and she made tapes for friends of hers, and he would sit around and he would listen and he, you know, he'd, he'd pick up on that. So then in 
right around 1980, 1981, the family moves back to Smithville. And while a young Robert Earl Davis Jr. had visited Smithville, you know, here and there, this was really kind of a new introduction for him because this is where his family's from and this is where he has family. And so he meets, he meets people for the first time who are his cousins, who become his best friends. And as they kind of grow up, they're playing baseball together. You know, they're, they're just they're little kids. And then in 1984, they go to see Breakin at the movie theater and it just rewires Robert Earl's whole conscious. And, you know, he, everybody's watching the, the rapper in that movie it was a young guy named Ice-T and, and the, and the, the break dancers were, were Boogaloo Shrimp and, and I, I can't remember the name, the, other, the name of the other guy, but, um, you know, so everybody's paying attention to the rapper and the break dancer, but screw the whole time is watching the DJ. He's, he's going, that's, you know, that's what I want to do. I can do that. And so he takes parts of his mother's record collection and parts of his mother's equipment, you know, tape recorder and turntable. And he starts playing around with them and he starts learning his way through the records. And then he eventually borrows a turntable from a neighbor and then, you know, meets another neighbor that has, more sophisticated gear and works his way into being able to, to get on that gear and practice and, you know, became a student of hip hop, you know, very quickly and, uh, and very studiously and, and learned his way around the turntables and earned his nickname by taking one of his mother's records and picking a little screw up off the ground and scratching out the song that he didn't like because he didn't want to play it again. And, you know, his, his cousin, his cousin Trey named him that, you know, who, who do you think you are? DJ screw. And that, that became his name. So <laughs> all this is happening between like 1984 and 1986. And, uh, they form a group called the Z force crew. You know, they, they have, they, they rap and kind of perform over, over instrumentals, over beats. You know, they they got a record by Dana Dane. They got a record by Timex social club. they, they were getting all the all the all the early hip hop that they could get their hands on. You know, um, Screw's sister Michelle had a, a friend who was a DJ who, you know, brought lots of hip hop records around. He would DJ all over the hill country, and he would go to Houston to buy records. And so he had a lot of the new hip hop stuff and turned Screw onto it that way. And so by the time in summer, late summer, nineteen eighty six, you know, his father. Um, who lives in Houston at that point, you know, his parents had, had split up and uh, that was the reason that the family moved back to Smithville's because they had split up and he had stayed in Houston that whole time, got to a point where he needed to either pay child support or figure something else out. And the something else was that he was going to take screw back with him to Houston to live with them in, in lieu mm-hmm. of paying child support. And so that's what happened. And so in late 1986 screw moves to Houston with his dad and, his whole life changes because, you know, he's pulled away from his cousin, Shorty Mac and uh, his cousin, Larry, who he'd formed the group with and who he had a really special bond with and because they'd really discovered hip hop together and kind of grown up through hip hop together. And then all of a sudden he's in a completely different environment with different people and uh, lots of excitement because then he's just closer to something that's really going on, you know, because there's a lot going on in Houston at that time. And so, that, that new environment and the time that he now has to himself because his father was a truck driver and was away a lot of the time gave Screw that much more opportunity to um, to develop his craft as an artist 
And then, you know, he and his father moved from a house that they lived in into an apartment building where lots of people live. And by lots of people, I'm talking about it's a, an apartment building that stretches several blocks, several blocks and hundreds of people live there. Hundreds, if not thousands. And that's where he really starts to meet people that, um, that recognize that there's, there's something to what he's doing uh, on the turntables and uh, start to, to, to see him. And, and he becomes part of an environment where there are lots of other people who are really into hip hop and he's hearing lots of other records. And as he's working on his craft and starting to record tapes, there are some people who come to him and like, I want to buy the tape. And so that really starts a whole new chapter for Screw right there. So it was really important in the end that he ended up moving to Houston, even if it wasn't necessarily in his plan and certainly didn't necessarily maybe feel like the right thing at first because he's being pulled away from his mother and his sister and his brand new baby niece, Shamika, and his cousins uh, and really everything that he'd come to know over the last, you know, six, five or six years of his life and put into a completely new environment. But, you know, everything happens for a reason. I mean, I, I also want to think about just like, so she said he starts making tapes in this period. And I think feel like it's worth taking a second to just like, I guess, dwell on that technology. Because, I mean, tapes, like portable cassette tapes, Walkmen, um, are also kind of new still, right? Like the ability to just like easily and cheaply make someone a mixtape has been around for what a little bit more than a decade maybe less than that at this point yeah something like that i mean i had a walkman in i mean dj screw was two years older than me so you know at this time you know late late 90s he's 18 19 years old i mean sorry late 80s he's 18 19 years old i'm you know 16 17 17 18 years old somewhere in there um, and I'd had, yeah, I'd, I'd had a Walkman for a few years then. And I think actually maybe earlier than that, I had a double cassette deck, you know? So yeah, the, the, the technology was out there, you know, and at, certainly at a, a certain point it was really ubiquitous and everybody had them. Um, but, but mixtapes were still the way to go. CDs barely existed at that point. They did exist in the sense that like, if you, happened to have a CD player, which nobody I knew did in the late eighties. I, I got one in 1990, you know, and even then that was just because it was, you know, then stuff was really starting to come out on CD. But before that you bought everything on cassette or vinyl and, but screw never took to CDs uh, because, you know, number one in 1990, you couldn't burn a CD. Maybe you could, if you were on a certain level, if you were super tech savvy or that sort of thing, but the whole notion of like burning a CD for a friend was not in place for many years until many years later, I'd say mid to more like late nineties was when you could. And even then when you burned a CD, it would take like an hour to burn a CD. I and mean, if you bumped the table, it was, it was, it was toast. Um, as a matter of fact, and as a matter of fact, the, the application that you would burn your CDs with was called toast. Um, but, you know, but, but mixtapes were the way to go. And he was just making some mixtapes for friends at that point. Um, I don't think that he ever necessarily at that point, I think he wanted to be a DJ, but I don't know that he really had eyes on it becoming a profession, um, in the early days until it got to the point where like somebody wanted to buy one of those mix CDs. I mean, those mixtapes, they want, I want to pay you for that. You know, that kind of turned everything around for him, but 
but he was he was he was definitely married to that format you know i mean if you jump ahead years later he never converted over to cds in his lifetime right you know he 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 loved vinyl and he loved cassettes and i think that he maybe maybe hadn't quite discovered this yet but you know cassette tapes would become central to his sound because you know there's something to the sound of a cassette it's sort of a dead end right i mean it's not um it doesn't have the kind of life that vinyl has and it doesn't have the certainly doesn't have the clarity that a cd has but the music sort of sinks into the tape in a different way yeah that it doesn't on vinyl and it doesn't on cd and i think that later on as as the years developed like i said it's probably a little too early for him to have necessarily perceived this at this point but i think as the years went on i think that the the fact that each one of his tapes that he was putting out into the world had been taken down a couple of generations by the dub you know by dubbing it because he would record everything on an eight track this is this is jumping ahead a few mm-hmm. years technology wise but he would record everything on a multi-track recorder and then he would take that and he would slow it down with the pitch control on the multi-track recorder and make a master and then that master cassette is the one that he actually made all the dubs from so so the tape that you get is already down two generations mm-hmm. and I think that was really important to his sound. I think that there was something something to that, that he kind of knew how his sound was going to print onto cassette, and it gave him an extra little bit of road for the for the music to sort of sink into, you know, kind of die its way into the tape, as it were. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that makes a lot of sense, that kind of like medium specificity of the sound. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's also because of the analog nature i mean there's like a uh like almost like a natural scalability you know what i mean like it it a seven inch right you've got to mm-hmm. put down your money and buy you know go to a pressing plant and make x numbers of seven inches and it's like an investment mm-hmm. and then you have to sell them or not right mm-hmm. and i feel like thinking about the way that you know his career gets started because my sense from from your book is that you know he's DJing out but pretty quickly people start wanting these cassette tapes um and then increasing numbers you know he's got this big stack of people's orders that they write down all the songs they want and and that that in some ways for for someone coming up you know without without like a, a ton of like investment money to like press a record or something the sense that you could make you know one copy or two copies or four copies or eight copies kind of like at home like kind of almost like a cottage musical industry um with tapes mm-hmm. it seems like it gave it a lot more flexibility than kind of like grassroots flexibility than you would have with having to you know interact with a more formal part of the music industry at that period of time yeah but it was more cottage industry than even you indicated because those early tapes were just one copy he didn't make copies the early earliest tapes that he made only one person had each one of those tapes so they were personal tapes it was years before he got to the point where he was actually making dubs of those tapes it was years years later i'm talking about you know this era that we're talking about when he's first making the tapes we're talking about late 80s but really very very late 80s and early 90s 1990 1991 1992 and even into 1993 they're single tapes, single cassettes that he's making for people. 
10 bucks a piece. And then, you know, once in 1994, you know, again, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but 1994, once he gets his own house and he can record around the clock and have people over his house anytime he wants, it really opens up everything for him. And then that gets to the point where he starts, you know, that's when people really started getting turned on to his music and his music really started to spread. And that's when he said, look, I'll make a personal tape for you. I'm also going to make copies of it. And that was, that was when, that was when that part of it really came into play, the kind of mass production uh, aspect of it. So, which is really fascinating because, you know, that really amounts to the last 60% of his career. You know, if you, if you, if you were to argue that his career sort of starts in like 1989 or so when he starts to get his first, you know, DJ gigs and sells his first tapes and that sort of thing, you know, and all the way through to his, his death in late um, 2000, you know, you're talking about 11, maybe 12 years, if you're being generous right there, maybe 11, 12 years of his career. And he didn't start to, he didn't start Mm -hmm. to mass produce really until like 1994. And so everything that exists before that existed as a single copy, which makes it all that more that more impressive that you know that his music was spreading through Houston. People were making copies of those tapes, no doubt themselves, but he wasn't. And not until you know, not until like 1994, somewhere in there, that's when he started telling people, "Look, I'll make you that tape, but I'm going to make copies of it and I'm going to sell them." And that's when he started, you know, buying up boxes of tapes and starting to buy the double cassette decks and started turning it into an operation of his own so let's talk through that that like 1990 to 1994 moment like because this is the this is the period where he you know in collaboration with with a couple other folks really starts developing what's gonna become like the 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 iconic dj screw sound and and so maybe you can talk us through that uh, talk me through that a little bit like how does the slowing down happen how does the double tapping happen it's such a distinctive such a distinctive musical approach. well the double tapping you know neither neither of those are new new techniques you know there's there's djs that have been double tapping forever there are um we've all owned a 45 record that we didn't study close enough and put it on the turntable and started playing it at 33 and sometimes you know the the, the more uh adventurous ones of us have just left it like that and just let it play through. Um, so those, those techniques were not new the, 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 the slowing down came from, and the double tapping too, for, for that matter, although they were not necessarily employed at the same time. Um, those influences came from a Houston DJ named Daryl Scott, who, uh, preceded screw by a, a full generation. You know, he was active in the, the late 1970s and by, you know, the early eighties was, running off copies of his own mixtapes that he was making that, you know, he was, he was like kind of a more funk soul party DJ, but as hip hop records, he he wasn't like a hip hop DJ to begin with. He was a DJ DJ, you know, and as hip hop records started coming out, he just seamlessly folded them into what he was doing. So everybody associated Daryl Scott with like this, this sort of rise of hip hop in Houston because he was on it immediately, right as it came out, you know, he was on it. And so, you know, by 1983, 1984, you know, Daryl Scott can't run off enough tapes to satisfy demand. And by like late 1984, he opens up his own record store so he can make blast records, blast records and tapes so he can sell his own tapes and also sell other records. But, you know, 
going to create a, um, a business for himself and create, you know, um, an epicenter for, for where people can come and, and be a part of the culture and, and, you know, you can hold events and, and, and all that kind of, that, that kind of stuff. And so on a tape of his called, uh, 33 and a half, he slowed down a couple of songs and, uh, on a tape called eight on the double, he was doubling, which is tapping, which is chopping, you know, it's, it's the same thing essentially. Uh, and you know, he didn't necessarily put those two styles together every time and he wasn't slowing it down anywhere near what screw was doing, but that was an influence. And, and, and Daryl Scott, Daryl Scott was an influence in the sense that, like I said, he's a generation older and very, very early on was a big brother to a lot of people and was a hero to a lot of people because mm-hmm. this was a, a, was a young black man who'd opened his own business in a black neighborhood and for, and was, uh, inspiring, uh, young men to stay out of trouble and, and to, um, and to pursue their passions. And so a lot of people really looked up to Daryl Scott and still look up to Daryl Scott. Daryl Scott's still out there. He's still making recordings and, uh, he's still one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. And so, you know, so, so screw anyway, so screw met him in the late 1980s and, and, uh, and went in and mm-hmm. would go into his shop and started to get to know him as a DJ and started to lean on him and study him and, and call him and, and, and learn from him. So there were a couple techniques right there, you know, that, um, where he, where he picked up the doubling, I'm not sure, you know, he, of course there's lots of stories, but you know, I, I know that one spot was an early group that he worked with called image nation where, you know, there, there was a DJ in the group who was transitioning to become a rapper, um, but had lots of gear and, and, and showed screw lots of stuff. And I know that he was double tapping. So that's one spot. But then, like I said, also Daryl Scott was double tapping, you know, on some of his recordings. But I think really that it came from over the course of time, Screw just spending a lot of time working on those turntables and taking those techniques and just digging further and further and further into them and learning how he could slow records down more, maybe dragging his finger alongside the turntable as it went. And, you know, of course, like I said, once he got his hands on a multi track recorder, there's a pitch control on the multi track recorder. So if you're making a copy of something, you can. Um, you know, you can, you can slow down the pitch control. You slow down the entire thing with a, a lot more than you can with the pitch control on the turntable, because if you've got two records on the turntable, you know, you can only slow them down so much, you know, and, and you're really the, the pitch control and turntable is just so you can get one record to line up with another one. You know, if you've got one record that's a little bit faster than the other one, um, you know, you, you can, you can slow it down with the pitch control or speed the other one up or however it may be. But, you know, that wasn't, screws deal anyway screws deal you know once he got his hands on enough records was to get two copies of the same record onto the turntables and play one of them a little bit behind the other one so that whenever he did go back and double he was repeating something that you just heard on one turntable so and this gets a little confusing but his turntables were wired backwards you know with 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 a uh-huh. traditional turntable setup, if you're sitting there and you've got your your crossfader right there, your mixer, and you know you've got a turntable on your left, you've got a turntable on your right. So if you move move mm-hmm. your crossfader over to the left, it brings in the audio from the turntable on the left. If you move it over to the right, it brings in the turntable from the right. Well, Screw had his wired the opposite way, so that if he 
moved his crossfader to the left, it brought in the turntable from the right. And if he moved it to the right, it brought in the one on the left. Mm-hmm. There's a certain percentage of DJs that do it that way. It's but it's a, it's a, it's a it's a smaller percentage. It's you know twenty percent or something like that. It's not very not very many DJs do it that way. Most most of them, especially nowadays, you know, when people don't even use turntables anymore. <laughs> you know, if they are if they're using a crossfader at all, they're just probably doing it traditionally. But so you know, he had his own way of of, of going about things, and I think that really it was just him taking the time. Um, to go through there and to, to, to develop that sound and, and um, to have the encouragement of the people around him as he kind of started to dig into that sound and people really feeling it and really getting a feel for what he was doing. And, and, you know, also at this point, this is, this is a point really where, you know, Daryl Scott's run was throughout the eighties and into the early nineties, but there was a point where he was kind of growing up and moving on and, you know, got married and, you know, got a, got a different job and, you know, Blast Records stayed open that whole time, but, um, you know, he just, he had other things that he was doing and he wasn't making tapes with the same sort of regularity. So DJ Screw sort of filled a void that was left therein and, um, and, and did so by developing a, you know, a sound that, um, was just thirsty for, for voices to be in, uh, you know, to become a part of it too, which was the, which was the whole next phase. And the other thing that, that you said is that at least some of the, like, um, you know that that move from mixing records that I guess were not exclusively but probably mostly released, you know, outside of Houston to to having mm-hmm. kind of those Houston voices. At least initially, that's because people weren't crediting him for his tapes, and so if his his voice is on the tape talking and he starts recording himself talking, people, you know. It's it's clearly it's 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 clearly him. It's not someone mm-hmm. else. So I don't know that it wasn't his voice on those tapes first. That's possible, but there's no way that I know for sure. But what I do know is that early in the game, that um, when he first got the equipment where he could do so, he started recording um, shoutouts on the ends of tapes. Okay, here you know I got your tape ready. Come on over and like when when we get to the end of it, you can do some shoutouts. And like I said, as he as he got a multi track recorder, that became possible because then he could mix the tape, and then they could go back and they take a microphone and do some shout outs over it. And those shout outs persisted over the period of of a couple of years, really until he moved out of his dad's house and moved into a house with his girlfriend, and got to the point where people could come over and and actually freestyle and actually you know take time and and, and really uh, and really go for it. So, but his voice was on some of the early tapes. Um, I think a lot more so once he got to that point where where people were were really doing long freestyles on there, because then that was that was just becoming his imprint right there, and his voice belonged alongside all the other voices that were that were really starting to come to life. Which you know, they all you know there were there were people out there who'd just been waiting to hear that, and you know, maybe more importantly or equally as important, there were there were artists in waiting mm-hmm. who were, were ready to make that happen. And just, you know, the kind of, I feel like the last piece of the puzzle that in terms of developing vibe is, is kind of like where these tapes are being listened to. And this kind of goes, I guess, back to like the built environment of Houston, which, you know, full disclaimer is not a city I've ever been to, but my sense is that it's a, it's a kind of big sprawling city and it's a driving city and that mm-hmm. car culture 
kind of similar to Miami, maybe car culture becomes pretty crucial as kind of a like a like as part of the auditory environment of of this music he's making. Yeah, yeah, that's where that's where you would hear the tapes. You didn't hear him on the radio. Um, for the most part, you didn't hear him in the club. Although there was portion of DJ Screw's career as a DJ where he did focus on getting out and working in clubs and making money as a DJ in the clubs. So there was some of that, but you generally, you were not hearing stuff slowed down when he was in the clubs. You know, it was just more a matter of him mixing Hmm. and, uh, and chopping, you know, and, uh, and, and mixing, you know, beat matching and, and, uh, and track selection and creating a vibe and, um, and responding to the energy of, of the crowd. But, you know, you didn't hear stuff slowed down. Um, so where you heard it was in the cars, people driving, people driving down the street, radio didn't play it. You know, clubs weren't playing his tapes. Clubs didn't play tapes. Then clubs were by that point playing CDs or, um, or they had, or they had DJs playing vinyl. So that was the place to hear it was in the cars. And so that's how it really becomes a part of the, um, as you said, the auditory landscape of the cities, because that's where you heard it. That's where I heard it first. You know, you heard it all over the place. And then, you know, you started to get a sense of what it was and somebody told you what it was. And then, you know, once it's pointed out to you, you just hear it everywhere. And, um, and it's so distinct. It's not just rap music that you're hearing, you know, it's rap music that's really slowed down. And you, as you hear more and more of it, you start to get a sense of the voices and you can, you can pick apart the voices and okay, this is Big Pokey, this is Big Mo, this is Fat Pat, this is Little Kiki. You know, even when even with their voices slowed down, big and booming, the the quality and the character of their voices was coming out, and so that's really how the music spread. Because you're right. I mean, Houston is a is a, a city of car culture. You have to drive everywhere. Uh, I can count on one hand how many people I knew when I lived in Houston who didn't have a car. You know, almost everybody who lives there has a car and almost everybody who lives there drives every day. I mean, I've lived in New York city for 16 years now and you, you can get around here your the rest of your life without having a car. And, and I know people here who do not know how to drive because they've never had to, but, um, but car culture is a big uh, part of Houston and, and the, the way the city is structured, there's lots and lots of local streets that people drive down and, um, in, in, and it's not a, a, a tall city like other cities. So it, because it's more spread out, you've got kind of five or six little, little downtowns. And then there's, of course, there's the one big downtown, but uh, there's a certain way that, that the sound of a uh, screw music travels through Houston. And it's, it's really unique. It's hard to describe unless you're there. Um, but I've heard DJ screw here in New York, in Brooklyn, and it sounds very different you know, bouncing off of a bunch of brownstones and like four story buildings, uh, than it does bouncing off of, you know, one story houses with yards surrounding them. There's just a, it's a, it fits so perfectly. And it's not to say that it doesn't fit in New York city. Of course it does. But, uh, there's a certain way that that music wraps itself around the landscape of Houston. That is just, uh, impossibly perfect. And I think that's why so many people, uh, got turned on to it so quickly and, and saw themselves in the music heard heard themselves in the music if you will because not not just because they were talking about their streets and their neighborhoods and talking about the ways that they customized their own cars or the 
cough syrup that they were drinking in their own styrofoam cups. That was all part of the culture that you were hearing about on the tapes. But there's also just a certain way that that music sounds in Houston that's just inescapable and, and just so perfect. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's really, really interesting. And so that next step where you start having all of these Houston voices, I guess 93, 94, Screw is kind of increasingly established. He's making some real money from making tons and tons and tons of these personalized tapes. He's DJing some. And then, like you said, he gets his own space. This is the, the famous like wood paneled room, right? And he starts kind of creating this set of artists who kind of circulate around him who are down to kind of um, take part in these like like almost sounds like from the way you describe it, these like hypnagogic like starting late at night going for hours and hours live freestyle sessions that screw transforms into this incredibly extensive series of mixtape releases that he starts just like pouring out into the city yeah yeah well like i was saying before i think that there were there were artists who were just waiting for something like that to 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 happen you know for them to to have a platform like that and a way for them to express themselves a safe space that screw created for them where he'd pass the mic around the room sometimes with people who all knew each other and sometimes maybe not. And, you know, he'd laid down a bed of music and set a vibe and that microphone would go around the room and it might be passed to somebody who's just itching to, to get it out. And maybe he or she has some lyrics that they've thought of or some freestyles that they've been kind of playing with, or maybe they're just going totally off the top of their head, but either way they're ready for it. And then sometimes the microphone will get to somebody who's maybe not ready for it, but who learns something about themselves in the process of having that free space to to experiment in and to to you know to really share something with uh, with the room and also with the city, because everybody at a certain point became aware that like you know this this music is going to get out, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna be everywhere. And, and it's a reflection of, of what happens in that room, the, the, the live aspect of, of what happens in that room and the way that Screw encourages that experimentation and that expression of self. And I think for some people that turned them into artists, that made them into artists, you know, and, and because, because he's, he was supportive of it and he allowed them to to have that room to do that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for me, like an old punk rocker, like that's, that's my connection to screw because I see punk rock, you know, I grew up on hip hop and punk rock both. And I always saw both of them as I love Ian McKay's definition of punk rock. He says, it's free space. It's a free space where you can do what you want to do. And, and it, and as weird as it is, and it, and it's okay. And you've got permission to do that. And I've always felt like hip hop, you you can make an argument one way or another, whether it's still like this, but it certainly was like this in the beginning. And I felt like this. And I really feel this with Screw's music was that he was creating a free space. He was allowing people to be punk rock. And the fact that 
he wasn't going out and trying to get major label deals or to to sign artists and make lots of money off of them or anything like that that he was trying to keep everything really street level and really you know distributed by him run his own business and 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 to help help the artists grow from his epicenter i think that's incredibly punk rock and uh it's a really beautiful thing that that he did for a lot of people and that's i think that's why you see that that dedication to him to this day and the way that people talk about him and the way that people think about him and with people keep his legacy alive and you can see that in these artists that i was talking about who came up on his tapes maybe as just like neighborhood freestylers who weren't necessarily going to embark on careers as rappers but now they are all all of them have different stories all of them you know are from different neighborhoods and they, they grew up in, under different circumstances and they, they've got different families and different groups of friends but all of them have that connection to screw and um, and, and a lot of them have been, you know, have been given that, or, or, or should I say, grew, collaborated on and grew that with DJ Screw and have, have grown into like really amazing, prolific careers. Look at Lil Kiki, look at, uh, look at Big Pokey, look at ESG, look at Lil Flip, look at Zero and Trey the Truth. And, you know, I, I know I'm leaving a bunch off because, you know, you, it's, it's impossible to make a full list. And, and of course, not even to mention all the artists that have passed, Big Mo and Fat Pat. Pimp C was a part of that, that part of that free space. So his, his legacy just continues to, to, to blossom and, um, and, and continues to give. And I feel like all the artists that came up as a part of that are, are still, still championing him as, as a, something, someone who lit the fire for them that, that still burns. Yeah. And, and you're, it's also really interesting what you said about kind of keeping it underground and keeping it very like locally centered. I mean, something I think about or we think about a lot on this podcast is about, you know, how do you create vital local music scenes, right? Like how do you create music economies that actually work for the people who live in them? And, and one of the things that that's really remarkable about DJ Screw is that partially again, because cassette tapes, I mean, you know, I guess, the next step jumping forward uh, another year or so is <laughs> he starts producing these tapes in mass. He starts producing, you know, selling them out of his house in large enough numbers that people think that he's doing dealing drugs. Cause why would anyone be buying so many cassette mm-hmm. tapes eventually has to kind of come in out of the cold cool. uh, and like, you know, get set up with, uh, I assume like some relationship to sales tax, <laughs> Mm-hmm. But that all of that, you know, eventually set, sets up a, a like a retail business front, kind of kind of like Blast Records on that model. But like all of that is mm-hmm. very, um, it's still like circulating, focused on the Houston community, and you know, I guess more broadly outside of that, but primarily focused on, on the community and focused on kind of circulating that music in and with and yeah. through it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that. Um... I don't think that, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't say that there were no Houston artists who were romanticizing LA or New York, you know, in, in the sense that it would be great to break through to that kind of audience. But I think a lot of them were, were looking at the, looking at the, the scene that had grown in Houston where, you know, they could, especially once they pivoted to, to record deals with local labels, 
and some of them with labels outside of Houston and uh, they could go play in clubs and make lots of money. And uh, they weren't making money off the screw tapes, you know, uh, screw. That's just not the way his, his uh, business model worked. They were, they were doing well enough in Houston and in the regional areas around Houston to not really have to worry about going outside of that. And, you know, I think the localized aspect of it, and, and maybe that was a, a personal thing for screw, you know, he, he traveled some, but for the most part, he was a homebody. He, he always worked out of his house. You know, it was only near the very end of his life that he was actually, um, working on getting an actual studio and, um, and moving out of a house that the house that he was using as a studio. But, um, I think he saw no real reason to, to, um, you know, he wanted to screw the world. That was something he always said, but I think that building it, building everything at home and building it with people that he was close to and that he could trust and that he had worked with for all those years was really important to him. And artists in Houston, they don't leave. They're still there. Scarface still lives there. Willie D still lives there. Slim Thug, Paul Wall, Mike Jones, everybody that you can name, Lil Flip, they all still live in Houston. They don't move off to New York or LA. They don't, uh, they don't split to go to Austin because it's cooler. They, they stay in Houston. And um, I think that that, you know, whereas you can certainly see it with a newer generation of artists like Lizzo or Megan Thee Stallion or Travis Scott, they're, they're more global artists in, in a way, but they've, they've also got major deals and, you know, management behind them. And they're, they're getting flown all over the place and they're doing product tie-ins and sponsorships and everything like that. And that's, um, that's not really how everybody else in Houston has worked. And, and that's, that's, that's now, you know, that's, that's a different, we're in the future now. It's a very different kind of, um, generation, but the, the model still works for a lot of artists in Houston to where they still make their money around Houston and in Texas and Louisiana. And really, you know, Texas and Louisiana are, are brother sister states. I mean, there's every, everybody in East Texas has family in Louisiana and everybody in Western Louisiana has family in East Texas. I got right. family all over Louisiana. And so, and that's spent lots of my childhood there, you know, so, you know, those, those, those two are very much, uh, you know, and there's a circuit of, uh, of places that, that artists from Houston, uh, Houston rap artists play around Texas and Louisiana and even into Arkansas. And, but, uh, but for the most part, it's really centered right there. And, um, you know, because they've, they've, they've proven over time that that, that model works and the audience is there and the audience is, has grown up and grown right with the music and uh, and still support it and, and it's such a beautiful thing. I, I don't know, I, I don't know if there's any. You know, I was asked the other day if there was any other scene like that that you could compare it to, and I said I really don't know. I, I don't know. I, I I can't think of one, especially where everybody stays there. Everybody sticks around in town, and 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 even if they're not necessarily actively making records anymore, like Scarface and Willie D, you know, are not actively making records anymore but um there's still a, a big big part of what's going on and i think that 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 gives you know younger generations something to look forward to and that they can really dedicate their lives to music and and that and that there's there's a far end to it to look forward to also so screw like you said passes in it's like late 2000 right mm-hmm. and you know it, it's one of the amazing things what you're saying is that like um, his sound and, you know, the the sound that grows up around him, you know, kind of including 
my understanding, like the north side, like Swisher House sound, which is certainly certainly like a cousin sound to this Gruden chopped sound. Mm-hmm. You know that there's influenced by for sure. Influenced by for sure. That that um, so much of of that that scene that that Houston rap scene is is you know there's there's almost like uh like an underground semaphore. <laughs> Right of of these tapes for years mm-hmm. and years and years that to the point where you write that labels are sending screw, even though they're not making a dime off his tapes, and none of it holds up or almost none of it. There's you talk about there's a couple of records where he gets stuff cleared, but almost none of it holds up to yeah. anything resembling <laughs> copyright standards. No, uh, not at all. That there's this kind of like this is a wave. For, it's almost like a radio station in a way. Like this is a way that it is possible to to for this community to to hear a certain set of artists and for people to break and for people to come up, and then it creates this really like vital musical conversation. So Screw passes in, in two thousand, and I guess what what happens to that conversation? It sounds like from what you're saying that that a lot of it those roots are so strong already that a lot of it stays stays active in this really amazing way. Yeah, well, you know, the rug was definitely pulled up from under everybody because there was, the source of that sound was gone. And so everything at that moment became archival or or something that was influenced by Screw. Screw was a Southside DJ and everybody who got into his house for the overwhelming part was from the Southside. There were a few straggling Northsiders that got in there, but for the most part, Southside Houston, Northside Houston throughout the nineties were, were playing the whole wrestling soap opera kind of game of just going to war, you know, East coast, West coast, you know, you had the whole East coast, West coast thing going on with, with hip hop, Biggie and Tupac and everybody. And you had a reflection of that going on in Houston. Northsiders couldn't get into screws house and they, we're better set not to drive blue cars down to the south side, just like you were better set not to drive a red car up to the north side. The reality was that people who lived on the north side of Houston loved that sound also, because that part of Houston still sounds good when you play screw tapes in it. And so, <laughs> you know, and they had a lot of talented people up there who, who wanted to experiment with that sound. And so that's how you get Michael Watts and OG Ron C and, that whole scene. And so they started the, the you know, Swisha House label in the mid 90s and influenced by Screw for sure and influenced by Daryl Scott as well. And they brought up a whole cadre of artists under them that some of whom started off as interns and then became artists, you know, Slim, um, Paul Wall and Chameleonaire and, and Slim Thug, Mike Jones, Magno, Little Tiger. You know, there's a whole um, Archie Lee from the North Side. You know, there's a whole. Uh, Kuda Bang, a bunch of artists from the north side that wanted to, to create something slowed down and uh, were feeling the same uh, rhythms that, that came through in, in the chopping. And that's how you get Swisha House. And so what happened in the wake of Screw's death was that the screwed up click kind of scattered um, because they, they didn't have a central gathering place anymore around Screw. And really... In a lot of ways, that central gathering place had been sort of broken up in the years preceding that as Screw moved out of the city of Houston and into um, a couple of little 
cities that are to the southwest of Houston, Sugarland and Missouri City. He moved his studio to Missouri City and his his house to Sugarland, and uh, started building a studio in in an area called Sharpstown. But uh, they they sort of largely scattered, uh, and really right around the same time, the um, 9-11 affected the music industry in, in ways that, um, you know, people only realized really years later and a, a big distribution hub in Houston for artists called Southwest Wholesale um, shut its doors in early 2003. And so that was a way that people could press and uh, create music independently and get paid for it and make plenty of money off of it. And the uh, so once they cratered, then the big design house in Houston, Pen and Pixel, also cratered, and this really just pulled out another sort of rug from underneath Houston artists. And it was that that really around that time that you started seeing some artists go to the major labels like Lil Flip, and Swisha House um, was Swisha House had continued working all this time, and was working their way up was, was had a lot of momentum behind what they were doing and had some of their artists positioned in a way to where if they're with distribution deals to where if their records did well enough, they could be upstream to a major label. And because of the song still tipping, uh, which came out, you know, the earliest version of that came out in, in 2004 and then a remixed, you know, different song with a different beat on it came out in, in 2005 all of this kind of energy taking up in the in the vacuum that was left by screw and really a sort of a lot of fa- really a lot of factors that were going on you know that the, the money was falling out from under cds you know because of stuff like myspace and and you know the way that you could you could start to put your music online and so people were pivoting towards that and people were a lot more connected through their mobile phones and through the internet at the and, record stores and yeah. yeah and so what happened was that like all of a sudden an entire scene that had been building for all these years in houston was all of a sudden bam in the spotlight and so what happened was that one song really brought that attention to houston but once that spotlight spotlight turned around and shined on houston that re- everybody realized oh wow look at all these artists in houston holy shit and so there's this whole scene that sort of blows up in really in 2005 but it was all simmering in like 2003, 2004 and brought a lot of attention to the city. And, um, I was, I was witness to it cause Peter Best and I had started working on our books right before that. And so we got to kind of ride that wave and, and see what was happening as, as, you know, all this national attention turned, uh, to Houston. And, um, you know, I, I really, I've always felt like, you know, the vacuum that screw left was, kind of what made mm. that possible in some ways and i have to wonder if if screw had lived and had been able to see through his vision of what he was going to be doing with his new studio actually pressing his stuff on cds um taking internet orders producing in his own studio and again at any hour of the night because it was going to be away from a, a neighborhood this time and actually he'd be able to to create sort of non-stop and really open up his entire world. I have to wonder how different things would have been if he would have lived and if all those dominoes still would have fallen in that order with Southwest Wholesale, with 
pen and pixel with swish a house with still tipping with with everything you know i think it would have been a, a completely different uh scene you know i i think that those artists like paul wall and chameleon air and mike jones and slim thug i think those artists still would have broken i think those artists still would have because they're all amazing artists you know i think that they still would have uh risen up to national attention but i have to wonder what order all of that stuff would have happened in if if dj screw would have lived and if it would have left you know uh been coming out of like a more uh i guess like a, a healthier local scene than one that had been been rocked like you were saying yeah really a really fractured one yeah exactly and uh, because that was the first uh, fat pat was the first high profile death from the screwed up click but he was murdered dj screw uh, died as a uh, not from a codeine overdose but from definitely the, the consumption his overconsumption of codeine promethazine led to his death there was there were other there were many other factors at play he didn't sleep um, he didn't have a good diet he didn't exercise um, he had an enlarged heart. He was obese. There, was, there were lots of things working against him. Um, but that really opened up people's eyes to um, to the dangers of, of, of codeine, you know, recreational codeine promethazine. And um, so, yeah, everything, everything changed in the wake of his death. And um, his, his legacy just continues to live on. And, and it never ceases to amaze me how much it, it grows all the time. I always felt like I wanted to have this book out years ago and you know okay, i want to finish this and you know because there was always differing points where i felt like oh there's a, a lot of attention about screw right now and everything and i just kind of held held my ground and just kept working on it just to get it right and um this whole time it's I, 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 there was always kind of this fear that like oh well, people won't be interested in dj screw anymore at some point but that's never happened still see us still see his face painted on walls in houston you still hear, hear his music everywhere see people with shirts with his face on them see people with tattoos of him on their arms and it's it's he's he's very much alive in the city of houston 